So tonight we're going to be doing something, um, a little topical on Thanksgiving and a key to a, a grateful heart or a thankful heart. And we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 33. So you can turn your Bibles to Psalm 33 and let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll uh, get into our study. Father, we thank you for um, this place in which we meet. Thank you for this building and uh, thank you for the people that are hungry for your word to come out and be committed to studying and, and being taught the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that our fellowship would be sweet one with another. And Father, we thank you that uh, you've brought us so far through this week. And uh, Lord, we, we have faith that you'll take us through the rest of the week as well. And uh, Lord, we pray tonight, just as our time is here, as we come, come to your Word, your Holy Word, that we would be able to set aside the busyness of our day and our week and just focus uh, for the next few moments together as we go through this psalm together and and hopefully draw out some principles that can apply to our hearts and our lives. And, and Father, we do pray for our country. And, and Lord, we, we pray that you would uh, uh, bring revival in the hearts and lives of people. Uh, that's where it has to start, one by one, heart by heart. And uh, Lord, we, we pray for our leaders over us. We pray for conviction upon their souls. We ask that they would turn to you for wisdom. And Lord, we... Uh, we are uh, humbled by our salvation. And Father, we thank you that you're a sovereign God who oversees all these things. And Lord, we just pray that you would um, lead us and guide us tonight and, and help this study to be uh, helpful, to be edifying, to build us up in our faith. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Just real quick, um, don't forget those of you who know Peter uh, Sparakis. Uh, his mother passed away about a month ago. And so uh, he asked for prayer for the service this coming Saturday. And the information was in the bulletin. If, you, if you're interested in going, if you don't have the information and you're still interested in going, talk to myself or Ken and we'll get you the information. But it's this Saturday. And we just want to be praying that the service is honoring to him um, and to, to the Lord and that uh, uh, the, the gospel would be preached. I'm not doing the service, but um, it's just a matter of uh, praying for the pastor who's doing it and, and really uh, expecting God to work in the hearts and lives of the people who are there. A lot of older folks probably will be there. So they are asking people um, while they're at the service to wear masks just uh, for that for that reason. So uh, be, be uh, honorable of that. Anyway, uh, we'd be praying for Peter in that whole thing. But tonight we turn our hearts to God's word and we're going to be looking at a key to a, a grateful or a, or a thankful heart. And, you know, we come to this time of year, we're coming up on a holiday, Thanksgiving, and there's a lot of things that I'm sure all of us could really be thankful for. Uh, we live in a, in a country where we have the freedom to come out, at least so far, and uh, express our faith and gather together. We have the beautiful creation that God has supplied for us all around us. And I, I often wonder, um, sometimes when I'm out and about, <laughs> At you know, down looking at something beautiful out on a on a, a Golden Gate Bridge or something, and you hear people next to you talking about, "Oh, isn't this so beautiful?" Or when you're up in the mountains and they look at the mountains, or you know, the the night sky, and they say, "Isn't this so beautiful?" And I thought, "Wow, that's that's they're giving thanks, they're giving praise <laughs> for something they're seeing, right? They're experiencing what we know to be God's creation." Um, and yet, they don't know the Creator. And it, it's so sad. You know, that must be kind of a, an empty feeling 
And it's Thanksgiving comes around once a year, and it's everybody's, boy, you eat turkey, you do all this stuff. But do people really understand who they're to give thanks to? And I would probably venture to say that most people don't. Uh, they may in a general sense, but they don't know God in a personal way. And so tonight I want to ask the question, you know, of you who are sitting here, would you, if you had the opportunity, would you like to develop a, a grateful, thankful, worshiping heart as a believer? Was that something you'd say, yeah, sign me up, right? I mean, yeah, if you could just go through a class, and by the time the class was over, you would have a, a grateful, uh, thankful, worshipful heart. Um, most of us would say, yes, we want that as believers. Uh, we recognize that it's, it's the right thing to be thankful to God for all of his blessings that he's poured out on our lives. Um, and it's even, I would say, even Ameri- American to be that way because we, we do have a holiday called Thanksgiving. And it's just once a year, but you know what? We, we note that it is about giving thanks. Unfortunate thing is many people would ask the question, well, to whom are we to give thanks? Because they don't know God. But as Christians, we understand that it is our, um, our, our, our privilege, our right, really, to, to thank God for everything. That's what the New Testament tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul writes, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is what? The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He doesn't say all thir- circumstances are good. All circumstances are blessed. He doesn't say that. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. And so before we jump on the Thanksgiving bandwagon, I really want us to realize that genuine, genuine Thanksgiving thankfulness is very much linked. It's bound up with the word trust. Thanksgiving and trust, you need to understand, go together. Because we'll never truly thank God until we first understand what it means to trust him. Uh, We'll never really be grateful to God for all that we have, for all the many blessings that he showered down upon us. We'll never truly be grateful to God until we first recognize that we are utterly dependent on him. For everything that we have. And I don't know about you, but I'm not always in that place. (laughs) I'm not always in that place of recognizing that I'm utterly dependent on God for everything that we have. But biblically, we are. And and the reason we're not always that way is because our, our human nature, we're not trusting creatures. Just humanly speaking. Naturally, we, we don't just naturally trust God. We're, we're creatures of necessity. We trust God when we have to trust God, if we're honest with ourselves. We trust God when we're forced to trust God. Why? Because our problems get so big, they get beyond our own ability to deal with them. And it's then that we cry out to God, right? We fall to our knees and go, wow. You know, we get that test result from the doctor and we're thinking, oh man, here we go. What do we do? We, we take it to God. Because we know it's out of our hands. Um, but the rest of the time, usually the rest of the time, we get along just fine by ourselves. 
we get along just fine by ourselves. If we can solve the problem by ourselves, we don't resort to prayer. We don't resort to saying, wow, I just need to trust God through this. Why? Because we don't need to trust him in that situation. We should, but we feel that we don't need to. But it's only when we come to the end of ourselves, you might say, uh, when we cast ourselves in, in total dependence upon the Lord, that we really begin, that's when we begin to experience what I would call is, is genuine praise, genuine thanksgiving. When we are the, at the end of ourselves and we cry out to God and he answers our prayer and we go, wow, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Um, and the book of Psalms, it's, it's been called Israel's hymn book. And we're just going to be looking at Psalm 33 tonight. But it's, it's called that because so many of the Psalms are, they're, they're, they're almost nationalistic. They're, they're individually uh, kind of pointed to Israel. Uh, they're written from the perspective of Israel's own experience as a nation. Or they express sometimes personal defeats that the people of Israel have gone through. Or the victories that they've gone through. Or maybe some of the longings that some of the individual Jewish writers, such as David, had in their heart. And the Psalms are expressive of all that. And Psalm 33 that we turn to tonight follows a little bit different pattern. It kind of breaks out of the mold of the rest of the Psalms. And what it does is it looks to all nations. It's not so much focused on Israel. It's, it's focusing on all nations and all generations. And it calls on all people everywhere to give thanks and to praise God for his universal blessings. So we're going to read through Psalm 33, and then we'll go through our outline together. So you can follow along in your Bibles. It's a psalm of praise for everyone. He, he writes there, the psalmist, in Psalm 33, verse 1, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make, make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like your typical church service, does it? <laughs> I think we need to be a little more exuberant in our worship, even in our church sometimes. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love, of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a, uh, as a heap. And he puts the, the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth, it's a universal appear. Let all the earth fear, fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as a heritage. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man 
from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the, of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on him, on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive even in a famine. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. It's a wonderful psalm. It's very encouraging. And Psalm 33 says right there in verse 1, it's written to who? It's, a, it's addressed to those who are the, the righteous ones. He says, O you righteous, it befits the upright. He uses those words. Those who sing praises to him. Uh, really, this this, this psalm is, is written to those who know God personally. I pray that's you tonight. I pray that you know the Lord in a personal way. You've trusted him as your Lord and Savior. You've come to Christ. If not, it's never too late. You just cry out to God and acknowledge your sin. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to turn from my sin and turn to you, and God will save you. But this is written to those who know him personally and to those who are seeking to please him by living lives of obedience. Um, but even if you know him, even if you're living in obedience to him, it seems that he still has to exhort us, in verse 1, to sing for joy in the Lord. We still have to be told to do that. You know, it's like we still have to be told as Christians we should be thankful, we should be praising God more than what we do. You know, we just kind of get in that hey, we're saved and it's all taken care of and we forget. We have a tendency to forget these things. And so the psalm tells us the key to a grateful, a thankful, worshiping heart is to rely 100% completely on the Lord. And so, you know, we don't know who wrote this psalm. It's sandwiched between two psalms of David. So there's a lot of speculation. Did he write it? It's it's a different uh, grammatical structure than the psalm before it. And it's different <clears throat> than the one after it. But David could have wrote it. We, he just didn't put his name there. So it's sandwiched between those two. But we don't know who, who wrote it. He, he, we know that David certainly learned the lesson that this psalm communicates to us. Uh, David was a man of praise. We know that by reading his other psalms. He was a man of thanksgiving. Why? Because the Lord put him in so many different situations in life where everything that he was relying on was knocked out from under him. Every prop that was holding him up, the Lord just kind of swooped down and knocked it out. And there was David forcing, being almost forced to trust in God alone for his deliverance many times in his life. When God did deliver him, what happened? He was, he was flooded with thanksgiving. He was flooded with praise. Why? Because he realized he was undone. He was at the end of his rope. There was no way out. And yet God stepped in. The psalm begins with this exuberant call to praise God in song with the musical instruments. You can see the the outline there I put down. Um, And then he gives 
the reason to praise. Why, why should we praise in verses 4 and 5? And he gives two, because of his work and because of his word. And then in verses 6 to 12, he kind of develops a theme of, of God's word as it's seen, first of all, in creation. And then he talks about it being seen in his counsel in verses 10 to 12. And then in verses 13 to 22, he develops the other theme of how this God works. How does he work? How does he carry out his agenda in the lives of his cre- those who he's created? And he tells us in verses 13 to 17, he does not work through man's strength. He does not work through man's schemes, very clearly. But rather, he works through those who are willing to fear and to trust in him. Verses 18 to 19. And then it ends with a final affirmation of trust in the Lord, verses 20 to 22. So we're going to go through this kind of quick, but hopefully it will be thoughtful and it, it, you can apply it um, to your lives. So if the key to a thankful, grateful heart, a worshiping heart, is to rely completely on the Lord, if that's what we want to establish, then the question arises, how do I learn to completely rely on the Lord? Because I don't think any of us do, if we're honest. We don't do it 100% of the time. So how do we develop this? And there's two main sections here in the psalm, and the first one is verses We're going to jump down to verse 6. We're going to kind of do this in reverse. We're going to go verse 6 to 12, 13 to the end, and then we're going to jump back to verses 1 to 5 and wrap things up. But in verses 6 to 12, we understand that we learn to rely completely on the Lord by recognizing what? The power of his word. We recognize the power of his word. Uh, Sometimes I think we forget that God's word is powerful. That if we tap into God's word, if we're diligent to read his word, if we're diligent to study his word on a daily basis, that will give us power in our Christian lives. That will help us get through the day, the week, the month. But so many times, what do we do? We, we relegate it to a, you know, uh, you know, I got five minutes in the morning, uh, just read this little quick little devotion, check, did it. But are we really spending time in God's word? Are we really kind of thinking about it are we uh, are we are we praying over it are we asking god to speak afresh the words of the page to our hearts or are we just doing it so we can say yeah I did devotion today <laughs> you know that's off my conscience <laughs> um, how do we how do we rely completely on the lord by recognizing the power of his word well the psalmist here is referring i believe primarily to god's spoken word because that's what he did before the written word was complete, he would literally speak to them. Today we have the written word of God, uh, so he, he speaks to our hearts through his word. Um, but it applies no less also to his written word. Well, in verses 6 to 9, I see here the power of God's word is seen in creation. In verses 6 to 9. Um, when we read that, y- you can sense that. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. I mean, do you ever go out on a dark night and look up into the sky? I mean, it's amazing on a clear night. If you're in the right place, right part of the country, I mean, you can, it's just unreal. And then you see those occasional shooting stars. I mean, you know, it sends shivers down your neck. It's, it's just that amazing. And it says that he just, you know, he just created it. John Calvin said this, he, he pointed out, 
that the psalmist brings before us the creation of the world. That's what he's doing here. Because until, he says, we believe that he created all that is, we won't believe that the world is controlled by his wisdom and power. In other words, it takes that step of faith to say, yeah, God created everything around us. In other words, what he's saying, what Calvin was saying was, believing that God created the world also leads us to the truth of his providence, his sovereignty in ruling the world, which the psalmist develops in verses 10 to 12. You know, if you start off with not believing that God created the world, I don't think, you know, it's going to be a very big jump for you to think that God is sovereign over the world, that he didn't have the power to create, right? It just doesn't add up. And so this relates directly to our believing that he controls the circumstances in our own personal lives. Um, He's working together everything. Romans tells us, right, in in Romans 8, 28, he's working together everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. He's working it together for what? For good. According to what? His His purpose, his plan, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he is doing this because he is the all-powerful creator, and he can do it. So to develop a, a grateful, worshiping heart, you have to be willing to bow in awe before the Lord as you realize just how much power he has. That his immense power basically spoke the universe into existence. I mean, when you think of the universe, I mean, if you do some study on this, just (laughs) go talk to some astronomers. Um, It's immense. Um, Some astronomers say they're discovering vast regions of space, vast regions of space that are completely empty. One such space is a billion light years across. Now, don't ask me how they measure. I don't know. You talk to an astronomer about that. But this is supposed to be true. A billion light years across, that's how big it is. And it's just, it's just vast, it's empty, there's nothing in it. That's 10,000 times greater than the distance across our Milky Way galaxy. Everything that we know around us as far as stars. And there are, are billions of huge galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy. And so when David said in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, when I consider your heavens, Lord, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, he says, what is man? Who am I that you would take thought of me? And the son of man, that you care for him. Because God is so immensely more powerful above our pay grade. He's so much more powerful than we are. It's hard to believe that he would even care for us in any way. And when you stop and you think when God created the world, he didn't struggle, he didn't strain. There wasn't a bead of sweat on his brow. Rather, he just did it by his bare word. By the word, it says in verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He spoke and it was done. That's what Genesis 1 records for us eight times. 
God said in Genesis 1, let there be, and guess what? And there was. It just happened. Amazing power. And our psalmist puts it in verse 9, he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. It's complete. Nothing to add. Nothing to take away. I mean, creation is a result of God's miraculous power. The Bible says that God created everything, everything around us out of nothing by a simple word. And you know what? As with all the miracles in the Bible, (laughs) um, the thing that makes a miracle a miracle is that it takes faith to believe in the miracle. You can't really prove a miracle. You must accept it by faith. You know, when, when someone's sick and they go to the doctor and they say, yeah, you know what, you got, <laughs> sorry, you have terminal cancer. Okay. And they go and they ask people for prayer and they go back to the doctor and the doctor says, I don't understand this, but you know what, that, it's not there anymore. Let's take another extra. There's got to be something wrong here with the machine, right? I mean, they have a hard time believing what this just happened. This was just a miracle. God answered someone's prayer. What what do you have to do? You have to take a miracle and you have to accept it by faith. And that's what Hebrews tells us in verse 3. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, it says, we understand that the universe was created. Why does it take faith? Now, I know some of you are older than me. But I don't think any of you were old enough to be back when God said, and let there be, and you had your little iPhone out and you took a video of it and say, yes, see, here it is, right here on living color. No. So it says, by faith we understand that the universe was created, how? Hebrews 11.3, by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He made it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. I mean, the only alternative to that, you can choose to believe that by faith, the only alternative is that nothing produced everything. Either God produced everything out of nothing, or nothing produced everything. Or that matter has always existed. But in some miraculous manner, by sheer chance alone, it came to be intricately ordered and and put together in a way that forms the creation that we look around and, and see today. I mean, I don't know about you, but you ask which view takes more faith? I'm, I'm a lot e- it's a lot easier for me to say, you know what? Yeah, God said he did it. Okay, God, yeah, he, he did it. He just did it. He just spoke it into existence. And the psalmist, psalmist then goes on there in verse 7. He says he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays them up in deeps, deeps in, the, in the storehouses. Um, now, they tell us the only ocean, really, that the psalmist probably would have seen was either the Mediterranean Sea or perhaps maybe the, um, the Red Sea or the, the Gulf of Aqaba over there. Um, he wouldn't have known that all the world is covered, two-thirds of the earth is covered by what we call ocean, water. He wouldn't have known that. 
I mean, think about this. The Pacific Ocean alone, just the Pacific Ocean, you know, right down here off the coast, it covers almost 64 million square miles. 64 million square miles. They tell us it has an average depth of over 14,000 feet. Isn't that amazing? With its greatest depth, almost at 36,000 feet. You know, if you've ever flown or sailed over the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> you know, fly to Hawaii, you get on a plane in San Francisco and you take off and pretty soon you're going like 500 miles an hour. And you think, well, you'll get there pretty quick. And you look out and what do you, you know, if it's the daytime, you look out and you see blue, blue water, if it's clear. And you go back to reading your magazine or watching your movie, whatever you're doing, you look out again, what do you see? You see blue water. And every time you look out for five hours, sometimes six hours, that's all you're seeing. You don't see anything else. You don't see any other land. I told somebody, I said, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're flying to Hawaii. And they asked me, they go, was it nonstop? Did you get a nonstop flight? I said, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I don't want to stop anywhere between here and Hawaii. There's nowhere to go. And I think what they meant was, are, are I got to SFO or do I have to go to L.A.? But still, I had to clarify it because I thought, wow, okay. It's an interesting question. But it, you know how huge even the Pacific Ocean is. And the psalmist here pictures God as piling up the water together, almost like a farmer would pile up a heap of grain in a barn. That's how powerful God is. Yeah, I'm just going to take all this water and just pile it up. Now, some, some commentators believe that this could be a reference of God stacking up the waters of the Red Sea when he brought Israel safely through it. That definitely could be. Or it could be a, a poetic description, you might say, of God keeping the mighty oceans within their boundaries. I mean, aren't you glad that God keeps the oceans within their boundaries? Think if God just said, you know what, I'm just going to let the water go wherever it wants. <laughs> We'd be in a world of hurt. Either way, when you consider the, the grandeur of the, the heavens and the, the magnificent oceans, the conclusion there in verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. He says, let all the inhabitants of the world, what? Stand in awe before him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I don't know how, as a Bible-believing Christian, you could ever harmonize or reconcile this text with the view that the universe and life around us on earth as we know it came about by random chance over billions and billions and billions of years. Nor is there any room in this view that we just read that God somehow got everything started and then, and then guided the process of evolution over billions and billions and billions of years. There's no room for that craziness. Um, rather, what does it say? It says God spoke it and it was done instantly. Instantly. And the obvious application is that we should fall on our faces before such a powerful creator. You know, I think the church of Christ today has grown a little too friendly with their God, in all honesty. 
you know, the man upstairs, you know, ah, it's covered by God's grace. It's casual, casual worship and just a big party. I mean, we, we should have a little fear in our heart when we come before God in prayer. Not cowering fear, but respectful fear. A fear that realizes, you know what, in one word, we could be a toasty little critter. He could just say, I'm done with you. Your life's over. I mean, who are we to praise ourselves in pride against such a magnificent God, such a, such a God who's blessed us with so much? If you look over at, at 2 Corinthians in the New Testament real quick, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Remember, we're talking about how to cultivate this, this thankful, grateful, worshiping heart that God wants us to have. Second Corinthians, Corinthians 4, look at, at verse 4. Now Paul here is talking about the light of the gospel. He's talking about this ministry of, of, of kind of reconciliation that we have and everything. And, and, um, but in, down in verse 4, um, he talks about how, in their case, that those who, um, who's having the, the gospel message veiled from their eyes, they, they, they're unbelievers, Okay, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, now, when, when, you, when you think about that, he goes on, on to, to say here that it, it, he's, he's keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. And then in verse 6, look at what he says. For God who said, what's he talking about here? He's talking about creation. For God who said, let there let light shine out of darkness. In other words, let there be light, and there was. What's he say? Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? What, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, you know what? <clears throat> if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, guess what? It wasn't your doing. It wasn't your doing. Redemption, our salvation, is as much a sovereign work of God, Paul says, as creation. That's the power it took to save us. In fact, <clears throat> Paul uses the analogy of, of, of creation to describe salvation over in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Just a couple pages to the right. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. New creation. The old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What's he doing? He's using that as an analogy regarding our own salvation. Our salvation is just as much of, the, of a miracle as God's creating everything around us. And so here he also uses the analogy for salvation, and he, he draws it from the creation of the physical world. 
light, let light shine out of darkness. It's the same God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God said, let there be light, and there was light in Genesis, that's exactly what happened. It's that same God who turned on that physical light that shone. He is the same God that turns on the spiritual light. And he does both without using any evolutionary process. (laughs) Um, You know, we were in utter, the Bible describes it as utter spiritual darkness. Lost in our what? Our sin. And you know what? Even more than that, you weren't just lost in your sin. You weren't just in utter spiritual darkness. You loved it. You liked it. You enjoyed it. Look at John chapter 3, verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19. If you want to understand your condition before you came to Christ, this speaks to it. John 3.19, John writes, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved, what's it say? The darkness, <laughs> rather than the light, because their works were evil. Why do you think churches have such a hard time in the Bay Area, Bible-believing churches, churches that are standing up for Christ and preaching truth and, and repentance from sin and, and, and salvation in Christ? Why do you think they're, they're, they're having a difficult time? Because we live in a very dark area. They call this peninsula the dark, dark corridor. The reason they call it the dark corridor on the peninsula is because less than 3%, less than 3% of the population go to any house of worship, any That includes all the cults, that includes the Catholics, that includes the Protestants. And if you think that statistic's wrong, I don't want to say don't come to church on Sunday, but if you had the opportunity to go around your neighborhood on a Sunday morning, you'll see it in living color. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things and they're not going to church. (laughs) Why? Because they don't have time for that. They don't have time for it. Verse 20, it says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You know, as a chaplain, I always wanted, when I was doing more ride-alongs, I would always want to go on ride-alongs at night. Why? Because at night is when the bad stuff happens. I want to be in the police car when he lights it up and, boy, we're ripping down El Camino, chasing stuff. That's That's fun. You know, I, during, the, during the day, you know, you're, you're going to help Granny across the street or something. You know, that's not, that's not, not that fun, you know. Um, bad things happen at night. And the reason they do is because the light would expose their, the darkness of, of their deeds. Anybody who's been involved in any kind of bad behavior in your past, you would know things happen at night. <laughs> and if you're trying to avoid that, don't go out at night. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, just as God spoke the sun into existence, even so God spoke light and life into our dark, dead hearts. He had to. We'd have no hope otherwise. Now, you may be sitting here tonight, well, wait a minute, didn't, didn't, I, didn't I choose to believe in Christ? 
course you did. You bet you did. But the question is simply this. How were you able to choose to believe in Christ? The Bible is very clear. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, it's because who went first? God opened your eyes. God first opened your eyes. He opened your blind eyes and you could see your need of a Savior. That's the only doctrine of salvation that causes us to humble ourselves in awe before our Creator. Every other doctrine of salvation that says, no, 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 I think it's up to you. You choose. And the reason you're in heaven is because you found God. How how can I find God when I'm not even seeking for God? The Bible says what? How many many people seek for God? None. None. I mean, he doesn't stutter. You know, you don't have to know the Hebrew or the Greek. It's, It's pretty plain. None. Zero. But you know what? Our our human hearts, our human race is filled. It's prone to pride. And so when you come to the the pride-crushing doctrine of, when it comes to salvation, we call it the doctrine of election, that God chose us, and therefore we responded, and, and we came to Christ, but he moved first. Sometimes we have a hard time with that. Because it does humble us. And it should. Because we're dealing with a God who created everything. I mean, what have you created out of nothing? I mean, have you ever created anything out of nothing? I don't think anybody in this room has ever created something out of nothing. I mean, we band ourselves together as nations in this world and we assemble our powerful armies and we think that we're going to conquer all these kingdoms and control our destinies and all this stuff. But we see the power of God's word is seen in his his creation. Secondly, in verses 10 to 12, we see the power of God's word that it's seen in his counsel. It says in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. (laughs) They're nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, on the other hand, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. I mean, just contrast the words there with the the proud words you've probably heard, um, this this one poem that has this phrase in it uh, by Henley. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You heard that phrase? Well, guess what? God answers to that and he says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Sorry. I already got dibs on that one. Um, I read a story of a younger politician who just got elected, and he was in Washington, D.C., and, and the older politician was taking him over to his house, and he owned this beautiful spread out on the Potomac River, and he thought he could shed some light in this young senator's life. And so they were down standing on the shore of the Potomac River, and the older senator saw this log, pretty good-sized log, floating down the Potomac just lazily. And... Uh, he, he turned to his younger senator friend and he said, you know what? This city, Washington, D.C., is kind of like that log. And the younger senator said, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He says, I, I guarantee you on that log there's hundreds of bugs and ants and other critters that have been sitting on that log. And as it's floating down the river, they actually think that they're controlling where this log is going. 
They're steering it. That's what this city's like. See, a proud man thinks that he is steering the what? The, the course of history. But the Bible is very clear. The Bible says, who sets up leaders and who brings them down? God. God alone. He sets up the most powerful kings in history, and he uses them for his own sovereign purposes. And when he's done with them, he brings them down. Whether it was Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, all those, God used each of those men for his purposes, for his chosen people. And yet none of those men knew God. None of those men were seeking to follow God, but God used them for his purposes. It's very relevant, I would say, to our modern-day political environment, right? After the last election, some people say, why would God allow Trump to have such a wonderful four years and blah, 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 and then only to have him lose? I always say, well, that's your first problem. You actually thought he lost, but that's another story. (laughs) But you know what? This is God. This is God, if nothing more, humbling a man who thinks that somehow, somehow this was his doing. And wouldn't it be great that one day our former president, Donald Trump, really comes to know Christ for who he is? And realizes, wow, it's not all about me. I mean, he's definitely had opportunity. He's been one president, surrounded himself with not always the most sound Christian teachers, but a lot of Christian teachers. And he's definitely heard the gospel. And he says he professes Christ. But I would beg to say his life, his whole character, doesn't really show the humility that needs to be there. And that's what God's trying to show him. I remember when, (laughs) still leading up to the election, and I can't remember, I think I was, I don't know if I was over at at, at the kids in Hawaii, their house or what, but I remember saying when he said, can you imagine if I actually lost to this character? Speaking of President Biden. And I said in my heart, dude, you're going down. Right there, I knew. I just thought, you know what? That, that is so prideful and so arrogant to say something like that. And trust me, I loved his policies. I'm a Trumper all the way. I should say that on tape, but whatever. But I, I think it's important. I'll edit that out later. <laughs> but the important thing is, is that God had a plan. And if nothing else, what do we see? What was he able to do? He was able to pull back the curtain. So at least now, we kind of know what we're dealing with, with these characters that are still there in Washington. Um, These men thought that they were making decisions that they thought would further their own agendas. These men in the Bible, but behind the scenes, what did God do? God providentially used their decisions to further his own agenda. And they didn't even realize it. They were responsible for their own decisions. They were making decisions on their own. And they will answer to God for those decisions one day. And yet God, somehow, in his sovereign power, used those decisions to implement his own counsel and his own plans. 
you see it really illustrated probably in the most important event in human history, do you not? The crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see it very clearly. I mean, this was the enemy. This was Satan's and, 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 and the pride of man's most serious attempt, really, to cast off God's lordship, his, his rule. They wanted to do away with him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, he says, by the way, in other words, you've seen this firsthand. You can't deny the power that Christ had in front of you. Verse 23, Acts 2, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow. But then, comma, wait for it, he says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. See, sometimes we don't completely understand God's sovereignty and human will. We don't quite get how they come together. But they do. They do. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28, the early church is praying. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. What's he saying? Basically, everybody was against Jesus. Everybody, even the people of Israel. But then it says this, To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Once again, the sovereign hand of God was involved. See, these self-centered, prideful rulers were responsible for crucifying the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. They were responsible for it. And yet, in doing so, they inadvertently, they didn't even know they were doing it, they carried out God's eternal plan for redemption. (laughs) Gotcha. God nullified. He, He frustrated their plans, the Bible says. And what did he do? He established his plan. See, the power of of God's word as seen in his counsel, it's further stated back to uh, Psalm 33 and verse 12. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is what? The Lord. And the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That refers to Israel, by the way. Whom God chose as a distinct nation from all other peoples on the earth. In Deuteronomy, we're told this in, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number, he says, than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. God's saying, hey, it didn't make any sense to you that I chose you. Um, verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a might." with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, although Israel was disobedient, although they were rebellious, right? We've just, we had a ton of that in Judges, right? Every week I was saying, yeah, the Lord, what? There was no king in Israel and people did what was right in their own eyes. And you just kept on repeating this cycle of sinfulness, judgment, repentance, God would raise up a judge, deliverance. They'd go back. Okay, now we're on, back on, with the Lord. And the same thing over and over and over again. And before we're too critical on them, it happens in our own lives as well. 
But even though they were disobedient, even though they were rebellious, he used them. He used Israel to what? To bring salvation for us, for the world, to bring a savior into the world. In Romans 11, it says that God has kind of set Israel aside because they did crucify the Savior. And yet, graciously, he will bring widespread revival to the Jewish people, to his praise and glory, by the way. Um, We don't believe the theology that talks about replacement theology which teaches basically that today because the church exists, Israel doesn't. So it's in, it's, Israel's irrelevant. The church has replaced Israel. That's what replacement theology teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches when God makes a promise, he is true to that promise. And he promises that one day he will bring revival to Israel. And they're in, in right, up, right to the end of the book. They're there. So, you know, it's going to be true. But we as the church now, we're, we're kind of the focus because Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do with the word of God. And so he kind of set him aside and gave him a time out. And now he's focusing on the church. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we fall under that, that umbrella of God's sovereign choice of us and the reason that any of us are are a part of god's people is because he chose us to be we couldn't have figured this out on our own Um, so we rely completely on the lord when we see the power of his word as seen in creation and the council or his his sovereign plan and then secondly here because his word stands against all opposition we can confidently rely on him Um, but we also rely completely on the lord by recognizing the pattern of his working how does god work in in verse four there the psalmist says that we should thank we should praise the lord for his word but also because of all his work is done what in faithfulness i mean are you glad we serve a faithful god what if god wasn't faithful what if God said one thing one day and changed, ah, yeah, I changed the rule, sorry. <laughs> you know, you're not really saved that way. You've got to work it around a different way now. No, God is faithful. Um, and after developing the theme of God's word in verses 6 to 12, now he shows that God does not work through man's schemes. Um, he doesn't work through man's strength. He says the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of men. He sees everything. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 15, he, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. It's a little intimidating. And the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by his great might, it cannot rescue. What is the psalmist doing here? He's picturing God as looking down from heaven. Kind of like you might look down from a very tall building. I remember when we went to um, India, we stopped over in Dubai. And when we were in Dubai, we got to go up on the Burj Khalifa. And you go up and you right, take this elevator 
and they say it's the, the world's fastest elevator. And it goes hundreds of stories into the sky. And you don't even feel it moving. And the weird thing is, is your, your ears are popping. <laughs> That's how fast you're going. But you're like, what is happening? It's a really odd feeling. And you get out and you walk into this kind of a gift shop. And then you can walk out and you walk out on this patio. And the only thing that separates you is this glass. It's probably like two-inch glass. But these glass panels. And you look down. And you're looking down, mind you, on buildings that are probably 100 stories high. But they look like <laughs> tiny little buildings. And, you know, you see, the, you see everything. It's like you're in outer space almost. It's, it's so weird. That's, that's the picture here. God sees everyone on earth. He doesn't have to look over here and look over there. He sees everything at the same time. He sees the woman who's bent over the rice paddy in Thailand. He sees the, the, the poor Indian warrior who's out in the jungle looking for food in South America. He sees the Wall Street executive in his 55th you know, penthouse suite in his office. He sees it all. He sees us sitting here tonight. And more than that, this is what's incredible. More than just seeing us, God knows what we're thinking. He knows the thoughts of our heart, our mind, even now. He knows you're sitting there, which his pastor would shut up so we can go home. <laughs> he knows. I wish the Astros would have won. He knows everything you're thinking. Why? How, how can he know that? Because he made every heart. He created you. He understands not only what we do, and this is even more intimidating. He not only knows what we do, but he knows why we do it. What's our real motivation? Why are we really here tonight? Are we here trying to impress somebody? Or do we come out of hunger for the word of God? Why do we really go to church on Sunday? Why do we give money to the poor? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? God knows. <laughs> he knows it all. Because he made each one of our hearts. That's why he can say in verse 16, there's a king going out to battle with what to him is a mighty army. He asked the question, was that king trusting his, in his army for victory? What's he trusting in? You know what? God knows. God knows. There's a soldier, verses 16 and 17. His, his muscles rippling with strength. He's a warrior, and he's mounted on this impressive horse. Is this, is this soldier trusting in his own strength? Or is this soldier trusting in his horse? What's he trusting in? God knows. See, the fact is, our, our human tendency, just normally, even as redeemed people, even as people who are saved by God's grace, is to try to perfect our methods by which we live. And then we trust in the methods. We try, to, we try to create an environment that works great for us, and then we just stick to it, and hey, it's working, we're just going to trust in that. And we live each day kind of sucked into all these things that we've come up with to help us live a better life. Methods, techniques, and they're not necessarily bad. There's nothing wrong with having applied methods and biblical principles to how you live your Christian life how to have a happy family, or how to build a successful church, whatever. I mean, there's, there's a myriad of things you could apply this to. 
I mean, a lot of those methods are helpful because they're based biblically on Scripture. There's nothing wrong with the methods. But God's normal way of working is not through faith plus nothing, but rather through faith plus using certain methods, means to accomplish his will. He doesn't just say sit there and do nothing. He wants you involved. But the problem is we plug in the methods, we plug in the techniques that work for us, and we begin to what? Because they work, we begin to trust them. <laughs> we begin to trust in those things. And so when something gets out of sorts, what happens? We panic. Wait a minute, it's not working the way it should. So instead of trusting the methods to work, we need to be trusting in God to work through the methods that we're applying. And the psalmist is saying that God does not work through man's strength. He doesn't work through his schemes. Because if he did, guess who would get the glory? Man. You know, if we could come up with a scheme to grow our church to 500 people and then write a book and tell everybody about it. Yeah, look at our church. This is what we did. And it was all glory to us. Who would get the glory? We would. See, God does not work that way. Secondly, God does work through those who fear and trust him. And this is very important to understand. If you want to be successful in life, if you want to have a purpose and a plan and God working through you in an active way, then learn to fear and learn to trust in him, not in yourself, not in your own abilities. And the psalmist just said in verse 13, you might be asking this question, wait, the Lord sees everyone on earth. Um, but now in verse 18, what does he say? He states his eye is on those who fear him. So which is it, Steve? Is he seeing everybody or is his eye on? What does that mean? Well, he means this. He means that God looks with favor on those who fear him, on those who trust him, to deliver them from overwhelming situations because they realize they can't do it themselves. In other words, God's means of working is not to find people with slick methods and wonderful talents and abilities and bless them, but rather to find people who are driven to trust in him. They, they can't do it on their own. And he will bless them as a result of them trusting in him. And these people that, that trust in him are not described as strong. They're not described as self-sufficient. In fact, they're in grave difficulty. Look at verse 19. It describes these people. It says they're what? They're facing death and they're facing famine. <laughs> that doesn't sound somebody like, you know, that's in good sorts. I mean, if you came in tonight and said, man, I had a bad week, I'm facing death and I'm facing famine, I'd say, wow, you really do have a bad week, right? That would not be, uh, you know, something that you could say, wow, this is wonderful. Um, see, people who learn to be thankful must first learn to what? To trust in God. That's where we have to go first. And people who learn to trust in God must at some point, at some point in that process that he has them in, they have to be stripped of every human crutch every human prop so that they're on their back and the only place they could look is god for deliverance as paul put it in second corinthians chapter one verses eight and nine he says we despair even of life indeed we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in god who raises the dead i mean that's an incredible statement 
that we have this death sentence hanging over our head, but you know what? It's there because we, we can't trust in ourselves. God wants us not to trust in ourselves. What are we to trust in? That God one day will raise us from the dead, even if we die for the gospel. It's irrelevant. I mean, doesn't that give you power to live the Christian life? I mean, why should we cower in fear? I mean, there's no reason for it. If there's anything that's possessing society today, it's fear. Just look around. Everybody's wearing these silly masks and they think somehow it helps. It's ridiculous. It's a lie. And yet at the same time, we don't want to be careless. We're not here to judge people who wear masks. I mean, you know, be, before COVID, if someone wore masks, you'd probably think, well, they, they're going through chemo or they're having an issue or they got, maybe they're sick or whatever. It's not a big deal. But now it's like this statement. And we as believers have to be careful that we're not judging <laughs> just as much as it's coming from the other side. We, we, we really do. We have to be cautious. And so we just want to learn to trust God more with our heart. Um, George Mueller said this, it is the very time for faith to work when sight ceases. The greater the difficulties, the easier for faith. I'm sure you've found that in your own lives. I mean, if you've got everything taken care of and you're, everything's coasting, you're healthy, wealthy, wise, everything's going fine, you know, God? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian and everything, but boy, he's just really blessing me. And, but you take all that away? And what happens? You fall to your knees. God, help me. I can't rely on what I have anymore. He says, as long as there remains certain natural prospects, faith does not get on even as easily as when all natural prospects fail. In other words, you're at a point where it says there's no hope. Hudson Taylor said this, you have proved the sufficiency of God only when you have trusted him for the impossible. See, God works through helpless people. Helpless people who trust in him. That's, that's how God works. He doesn't work through schemes. He doesn't work through man's strength. He works through those who fear and trust him. And then here quickly, lastly, therefore we trust and hope in him, verse 20 to 22. If you look at 18 to 22, it's filled with all these synonyms for trust. Uh, trust in the Lord. Fear, hope, waits, our help, our shield, our our heart rejoices in him, it says. Uh, we trust in his holy name, which speaks of his holy character. And so the Psalms, they emphasize praise, they emphasize thanksgiving, but they also emphasize trust. Our trust must be in God alone. That word trust in the Hebrew, it occurs 181 times in Scripture, and 50, 50 of those times, it's in the Psalms, that word trust. We want to be trusting in God. And then, lastly here, the beginning of the Psalm, verses 1 to 5, complete trust in the Lord results in a thankful, worshiping heart. There's six qualities here in these verses, and they're, they're kind of, they describe, you see first righteousness and truth. It describes his word. You see faithfulness, righteousness, justice, unfailing love. What's that describe? It describes his actions. And each of these is seen in all of God's word, all of his works. And, and his works and his word always go together. Just like thankfulness and worship are, are bound together 
with trusting in the Lord. Because when you get to the point where you have no human means of escape, and when you cry out to God and your only hope is that he's going to deliver you because you, you have nowhere else to go, and then he does, what happens? Your heart overflows with thanksgiving. Your heart overflows with praise to him. But when the, the slick method works, what happens? The method gets the praise. Yeah, I read this book. I tried this. I did that. I did this. But when God works, then he gets the praise. And he tells us that praise should be exuberant. Sing for joy in the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praise to him with the harp of the ten strings. Sing to him a new song. That doesn't mean speaking in tongues. That means celebrating a new deliverance or a new victory that he's given you. You know, you hear some Christians and, I, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's encouraging to hear people's testimony. But sometimes we get kind of stuck. And our testimony is the same thing that it was 20 years ago. And sometimes I want to say, stop. Has God done anything for you lately? Because that's what the Christian life is about. What has God done for you lately? How has God delivered you this week from something? Are you relying on him every day? Are you, are you that to the end of yourselves to realize, you know what, I, I need God to get through this week? Or is it only when the hard times come? Um, I don't think God would be impressed when he views down from heaven and looks at a church service if the song service is going on and, and people are just sitting there reading the bulletin stoically. They don't sing. There's no praise. Well, that's not my personality. That's, 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 a, that's such... I, I used to try to use that and God showed me that's not right. <laughs> You know, because I'm not the most exuberant person with my emotions and stuff. Uh, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to be swaying in the front row. Okay, I'm more reserved. I go to a rock concert and I don't even clap, okay? <laughs> but I understand what it means when we come to church and we're called to lift our voices, to praise Him, to sing. And, and sometimes you look out there and you just see people. It's like, are you even alive? Seriously. I mean, we should be singing with a passion in our heart for all that God has done for us. I mean, we know it happens when you go home and you turn on the 49er game, right? And you're, they throw the, the pad, oh, all right, you're throwing the popcorn and everything. But in church, it's like, oh, you know. it's ridiculous. The secret to heartfelt praise and thanksgiving is to recognize that you were in a desperate situation, that you could not save yourself from God's righteous judgment, that you cried out to God, a holy God, who spoke the universe into existence, the God who sent his own Son to save you by his grace. And because now, now that he has saved you, you experience his great love, you experience his forgiveness, you experience his grace. You understand that he delights in you, and you delight in him. And his great salvation... And you can't help but praise him and sing for joy and thank him. Matthew Henry said this, What a pity it is that this earth, which is so full of God's goodness, should be so empty of his praises. And that of the multitudes that live upon his bounty, there are so few that live to his glory. I pray that that 
can't be said of us. <laughs> I pray that we live each day for the glory of God. We're not going to do it perfectly by any means. But as God's righteous people, as God's chosen servants, we just need to learn to lean hard on him, to work through us for his glory. And when we see him deliver our souls from death and, and keep us alive in the famine and, and prevent things in our lives that we see coming, our response should be sing praise to him. Give him glory with all of our hearts. Father, we thank you for our word tonight from Psalm 33. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, that Father, that you would remind us that yes, there is a reason for us to give you thanks. There is a reason for us to be grateful because if it wasn't for you, we would be still lost, stuck in the muck, in the mire of our sin. And Lord, it's only by your grace that you saved us. You didn't look down from heaven and say, oh, I need to save Steve because he can play the piano and I need to save Dave because he can teach history. That's not, that's not what you did. You saw nothing in us because there was nothing in us. There was no righteousness that we had. Father, we are utterly dependent upon your grace, upon the salvation that you've so freely gifted to us. And I pray that just we could go through one day acknowledging that and reminding ourselves continuously that we should be thankful. And when we're thankful, we desire to serve. We desire to serve you with our whole hearts. And Lord, we want to show this lost and dying world the love of Christ. And we pray for people that are terrified right now by this virus, by the vaccine, by so many things in our our, our government that's going on now. It just seems wrong on every, every level. And yet, Lord, this is happening under your sovereign hand. It's happening for a purpose. You have a plan that you're carrying out. We may not know it. We may not understand it. But as your people, we know that we are in your hands. And you will guard our hearts. And Father, the worst thing that can happen is we die and go to be with you forever. Praise the Lord. So don't let us live in fear. Let us live boldly. Let us speak the words of Christ, the truth, to people. Help us not to be silenced by, by this society that's so politically correct. Lord, we ask that you would do this. And, and we ask this in your name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.